Paul read verses 1 through 4. And that will be our main text, although we'll deviate slightly a little bit in that because I think it would be necessary, and you'll see why as we go on. I encourage you to really study the book of Colossians. It's a fantastic book, and I say that about every book in the Bible. This was really great because there's a lot of things that we see that's unique to the Apostle Paul's writings. There's a few things that are brand new, some new concepts that are in here. So I want you to really take your time through this. But if you're not familiar with the book of Colossians, let me give you a little bit of a background. Paul likely never visited Colossae. Probably never did. Now, he spent three years in, in Ephesus. He had a ministry there. Now, to give you an idea, Asia, what the Bible calls Asia, was actually the area where we would call Turkey today. Ephesus was on the, on the west coast, right on the water there in Turkey. Colossae was inward um, on the east side of Turkey, and it was an important town for a while. It was a main road that was like a crossroads there, north, south, and east and west. They were known for their textile industry. They used to make this very unique red wool. They produced it over there that was pretty prized. But Colossae over time lost his importance. They moved the road. <laughs> the road no longer went through Colossae anymore. It went eastward, I mean westward a little bit to Laodicea. And as a result, the prominence of the city of Colossae diminished a little bit. But we know from Acts uh, chapter 19 that the gospel spread across Asia like a wildfire. Now, although Paul never likely visited Colossae, we know from chapter 1 of this book that a man named Epaphras went down spreading the gospel, and he spread it into Colossae as well and gave a good report. But Paul was compelled to write to these people, people he likely never met, because he saw something happen to these new believers, a dangerous false teaching had begun to encroach upon their new lives. Now, we're not 100% sure what the, if you could even label the heresy per se. I don't think we need to be dogmatic about that. There were some trappings of Gnosticism. There were some trappings of Judaism. There were several things kind of happening here, but there was a buzzword that was likely used. That buzzword was fullness. Now, let me explain for a moment. You remember how it was for you when you first became a believer in Jesus Christ. Man, nothing can stop you or get in the way between you and the Lord. You're on fire for God. You felt that passion for him. Maybe you know some new believers in your life and you see that passion. But then as you kind of moved along a little bit and you realized that the reign of sin in your life may be broken, but the presence and the nature of sin remains. And I think what was happening with these Colossian believers is that they started really wrestling with their sin and they kept turning to say, what must I do not to sin against the Lord that I love so much? In come the false teachers. They would come in and say things such as, and I'm, maybe a little bit of creative liberties here, but I could just see between the lines, read between the lines, you have, Colossian people, a really good start you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's great. But the reason why you're struggling so much in your relationship with Christ is because you don't have the fullness of it yet. We need to add something to this in order to gain this fullness that you're so desperately seeking. And so they come with things like philosophy. A lot of it was that Greek philosophy that was so prevalent of the day. Traditions of men that were not depending upon Christ. There were food restrictions. They would look to the Old Testament and say, well, see, you're not supposed to be eating shrimp, so you're eating shrimp. That's why you're not close to the Lord. You're not celebrating the high holy days that we used to celebrate in, in, in Judaism. Therefore, you're not as close to the Lord. Asceticism. Here's your Gnosticism, kind of the beginnings of it, really. Fasting. Denial of the flesh. God hates flesh and matter. You must deny all of it. Worship of angels. They're having visions. And so you need to have visions in order to have the fullness that you're seeking. They were prideful without cause, according to the scriptures. And Paul said the result of all this was that they were losing their connection to Christ Jesus. You see, they were taking Christ... And they were adding these other things and calling it the fullness of their salvation. And Paul says that it's nothing more than just a cheap imitation of spirituality. 
fact, he says that they've been taken captive. How many of us are recovering legalists in the building? My hand is the first one to go up. We have our lists. We have our checkboxes. Have you ever felt captive to that? I got to start doing this and I have to make, if God is going to be happy with me, I have to read my Bible today and I have to pray in a certain way. And, and we have this checklist of things that we do. And before long, we add to that checklist, don't we? It's not about reading the Bible anymore. It's about how much I read the Bible, how quality I read the Bible. It's not about praying. Do I pray for an hour or two hours? How do I pray for this? It's not about what I don't do it's, or what I do. It's about how well I do those things. And my, all this is happening is you're moving into a slow slide of being captive to these things. In fact, chapter 2 and verse 18, Paul says that they're being defrauded of what is rightfully theirs in Christ Jesus. We all know the word fraud, don't we? It's a crime. So someone takes rightly that's yours. They're being defrauded of what's, their, of what's rightfully theirs. Now, I chose chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And as I started really doing some exegetical work into this, I realized that really these four verses serves as a transition piece, if you will, for, of the entire letter. On the one hand, it rounds off what Paul was saying regarding the false teachers before this, but it also presents an alternative to that teaching that follows from these verses. So you're going to get a drive-by of Colossians today. But to sum it up, the Bible is telling us that Christians are called to live a Christ-centered life. That sounds kind of duh, doesn't it? Well, yeah, Christians are supposed to live a Christ-centered life. But you know how easy it is to stray away from the centrality of Christ in our minds, in our hearts. It happened to the people of Colossae, and it didn't happen like that, because if something happens dramatically, we know it, we recognize it, we push it away. But is there slow erosion away from the centerpiece of our lives being the Jesus Christ? In fact, in verse 4, he says that Christ is our life. He's our life. Think about what that means for a moment. I taught a version of this message to the youth group before they went to camp. It'll be a little different, so don't check out. But a baseball player by the name of Rogers Hornsby back in the 30s, he was a phenomenal player and a manager of many teams. He played for the Giants and, and he managed the Cubs and, and the Cardinals. He did several things. In an interview, they asked him, and said, what's your secret to success in all this? He said, baseball is my life. It's all I can think about. It's all I can talk about. Well, here's Paul coming in saying, Christ is our life. He should be everything that we think about, long for, hope for, and talk about. And so I know what you're thinking. They're saying, Brian, you're just going to give us like a list of sins from which we are to abstain, and that's the Christ-centered life. No. Not going to do that at all. Now, what flows after these four verses, there are some things that we should stay away from. We see that in all of Paul's writings. You might say, well, you're going to teach us how to live the Christ-centered life. Kind of, but we're not going to do that first. We're going to start with Paul starts. In fact, Paul gives these people three foundational truths of a Christ-centered people. See, we can't talk about living the Christ-centered life until we understand the basis of that Christ-centered life, but because it's the basis of that Christ-centered life that motivates us to actually live it to the full. And this is where Paul starts. Look at uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, he does not start in this passage with, you must live the Christ-centered life, and this is what it looks like. He starts out with a motivation for them. He says, if you have been raised up with Christ. Now, I like my, my translation. I'm using the New American Standard Version. says, if. Some of you, your translations might say, since. And I think that word can be translated either or in this passage, but I really like the if because it calls the readers, the people who are listening to this letter being read out loud, if you've been raised with Christ. Yeah, I have. 
but that means we have to understand what he's talking about. You see, that phrase, if you have been raised up with Christ, is a hearkening back to something that he just said previously in chapter 2. And so that bears um, some scrutiny. So look back at chapter 2. Let's start with verse 11. In him, meaning Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions. We're going to stop there. So what Paul is saying, one of the motivations that we must have to live that Christ-centered life is we must be reminded of our union with Jesus Christ. Right now, we don't have time today to really talk about our union with Jesus Christ. That would be a whole sermon series in and of itself. But for a person who's put their faith in God, that moment where God opens up your eyes and you see his awesome holiness, you see God for who he really is which means you see yourself for who you really are. Someone's unholy, completely alienated from God, as an enemy of God. Before you got saved, you never realized you were an enemy of God. You were, though. But God opened your eyes to it. You see it, and just when all hope is lost, that's when he puts Christ front and center and, and says, here's some faith, believe in him. And you put your faith in him, and at that moment, you're united with Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be united to Jesus Christ? Now, again, we don't have the time to really give a full treatise on this, but it is a mysterious thing, isn't it? It's spiritual, for sure, but the Bible gives us several analogies, metaphors, if you will, to describe our union with Christ. And the first is the vine and the branches. You remember what Jesus said in John 15, verse 5? Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He gives us this metaphor of the vine and the branches. Now, a branch that's cut off from, from the vine would just lay on the ground, wither and die. But the one that grows and produces fruit and is healthy and vibrant and vital is that branch that's connected to the vine. It receives its substance, its nutrients, everything from that main vine. Jesus is saying, he's the vine, we're the branches. When we've come to Christ by faith, we're united to him in this way. It's a vital union. We draw spiritual sustenance and life from Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul reminds us that we are the body of Jesus Christ. Now, he's not just speaking metaphorically. No, we really are Christ's body on the face of the earth. Christ is the head. We are his body. That's why I believe the world hates believers so much. They can't see Jesus, but they see his body. We act like him. We're supposed to. We talk like him. We react like him. And so they see that, and they hate Christ. That's what Jesus said. They persecute you because they hate me. They hate you because they hate me. We're the body of Christ on this earth. That's that union. It's organic. It's a legal union. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul goes through great lengths to talk about what we call federal headship, where Adam was the progenitor. He was the first one of the human race, and he fell into sin. And ever since that, every person that follows in the line of Adam, which is all of us, is now guilty of the same thing that Adam was guilty of. We are in him in that regard. But be thanks be to God, because of what Christ Jesus did for us, he becomes, as the Bible calls, the new Adam. He's the new head. And we are in him by faith in Jesus Christ. We go from being taken out of union with Adam and brought into union with the new Adam, Christ Jesus. And we don't receive the condemnation anymore. So it's like a legal union. We know it's a spiritual union. We know spiritual life is communicated to us through the Holy Spirit, but it flows from the work of Christ. He lived that perfect life because we can't. 
He died as a substitute for our sins, taking the penalty that is due us upon himself. And he was raised from the dead. And that spiritual life is communicated to us through the Holy Spirit. Paul reminds them. He starts out by reminding them of their union with Christ because he's trying to tell them, we have everything we need in Christ. There is no reason to turn to anything else for fullness. Jesus is the fullness. He says that in, in verse 19. All the fullness of God dwells in him. And he's like, I could see him. I've never met you people, but I'm just kind of scratching my head. You've experienced everything you need at salvation. Why are you turning to lesser things for a fullness? A fullness that you already have. So he motivates them with their union with Christ. And he does this in three ways. The first, he says that Christian people, we died with Jesus Christ. Um, verse 1, first part, therefore you have been raised up with Jesus. I mean, we can't be raised up unless we were dead. We, we, we don't bury and resurrect living people. I mean, they're, they're dead in the ground. And then verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. You should have seen the look on some of the youth's faces when I said, you already died if you're here by faith. <laughs> we had two heads. And I could, I'm pretty sure some people reading the scriptures would be, I died. What does that mean? It goes back to what Paul was saying in those passages that we just read. That when we come to faith in Christ, what we are doing is we are relinquishing the old self that we have. Who we are, that connection to the world, the connection to the curse of sin and the wages of sin, it is now dead and buried with Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. What does he mean? Was he just, oh, this is nonsense, rhetorical nonsense. No, in a very literal way, that old you, the old Pastor Brian, gave that up died with Jesus Christ, and it is now buried. In fact, that's what he says back here in chapter 2, uh, verse 12. He said, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. Now, the last time I checked, we, we don't bury living people, at least not intentionally. Well, I take that back. We do. I think the mafia is the only one that would bury people intentionally. But we tend to discourage that. You know, we frown upon that sort of thing. Now, he's making that implicit here in the passage that if you've been raised with him, you've been buried with him and then raised with him, it stands to reason that you died with him. Why is that important? Because your old self, your old way of thinking, the old connection that you have to this world, the philosophies of this world, all of its religious trappings is now dead. And you can't bring it back to life. But yet the people in Colossae we're starting to do that by taking on these false teachings. Paul's logic runs like this. You've been spiritually circumcised. This circumcision took place when you were buried with Christ and raised with him. And this burial and resurrection with Christ happened when you came to Christ in faith. That's why baptism is so important. Right? Well, what when you do when we baptize you is not the death of your death and your resurrection, your union with Christ. But it demonstrates that. I, we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but I, I didn't see you die with Jesus Christ. I didn't see you get raised with Jesus Christ. So what you're doing when you get baptized is you're publicly telling the world, I died with him. That's what we say, right? When we baptize people, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. The old man, the sinful man, the man that was under condemnation of the law and only could experience death, died with Christ. This is the picture of what happened to me. And now we're raised to newness of life. This is why we must look at this world and reject everything that it offers. Because it's dead. If it's not founded in Christ, it's founded of this earth. And that's what we died to. Then why do we turn to the world for answers? Isn't that what we do? Sometimes we're seeking some things. We're seeking answers to life and struggles that we're going through. And our first thing that we do is go right to Google. 
hey, Siri, tell me how to live a Christ-centered life. <laughs> Siri's going to feel like, yeah, it's not real. That's what the world does, and, and we die to those kinds of things, but then we turn to those kinds of things. What's the point of our death if we go back to that stuff? Dead is dead. It's gone. Why are we trying to exhume a corpse up and gain a little bit of help from it? That's the analogy that Paul is using. You died with Jesus Christ. All of that is gone. We move on, though. So that's the first motivation, is that they died with Jesus Christ. The second motivation is that they were raised with Jesus Christ and are hidden in him. So look back at Colossians 3. Look at verse 3. That's, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. Verse 1, I'm sorry, back up to verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... We need to praise God that we didn't stay dead spiritually. That old man died with Jesus Christ. It was as if when Christ hung on that cross, you know, we like to, to say the kind of the Christian platitudes, and, and they're good. They're, they're really, there's basis in Scripture for it, but with, well, when Jesus was on the cross, he just thought about me. Well, yeah, that, that's true. Because by faith you were there. You have to think of it in those terms. By faith, spiritually, you were united with him in his death. And then united with him in his burial. The old sinful you died and was buried. But the great thing about it is that you were raised with Jesus Christ. Isn't it make sense? If we're united with Christ in his death, if Christ himself was raised, then we too would be raised because my life is now bound up in Jesus Christ. That's the glory of it all, isn't it? We don't stay dead. But what's good is that we have, can live in the power of the resurrection of Christ. How much power did it take? How much power does it take to raise someone from the dead? Please don't turn to movies like The Young Frankenstein or something like that. That's not really raising people from the dead. We dream about it. People write books on that kind of stuff. But there's only one could do that, and that's God. And the power to raise Christ from the dead is the same power that's in us. Which is why I'm sure it's mystifying to people like the Apostle Paul when he heard about the struggles that the Colossian people were going through that were likely saying, I just can't help it. I don't know why I struggle so much. I was like, well, hang on a second. I, the struggle is real. I get that. But we don't need to be moping and whining and complaining. I just can't help it. I can't do anything else. We have the power of Christ's resurrection inside of us. This power is ours to live the newness of life. Isn't that what we say again when we baptize? Raised to walk in newness of life. In fact, if you would, turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 4. Romans 6 and verse 4. Yeah, Romans 6, verse 4. Um, again, it's very similar because, you know, similar author. <laughs> 6, verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The purpose of our dying, the purpose of our being raised with Christ, is not so that we can go about living however we lived before. That's why it's incompatible when someone says, oh yeah, I prayed a prayer. But you don't see any other evidence that Christ is at work in their lives. Well, they haven't died. They haven't been raised with Jesus Christ because the purpose of all this is so that we could walk with newness, I'm gone. Something new has come back up. Behold, the old is gone. The new is here. Paul says that several places in the Bible. In fact, um, looking at verse 12 of that same chapter, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Paul is going back saying, you've been raised with Christ so you can walk in newness of life. Therefore, don't let sin reign. You don't have to let sin reign. So often, I hear people will come into counseling, and other, other pastors would agree with this, and they just feel like they're captive to sin. And they just can't change. That they want to change. I just, I hear that 
so often, I just can't. I just can't. Yes, you can. That's the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus living within you. We're one with Christ Jesus. That power is effective. It's available and it's there. And this is why Paul is using this to remind them and motivate them. You can't even begin to walk this Christ-centered life if you don't even realize why that we died and are raised. What power we have to live the Christian life. Yet we choose not to tap into that power, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But he also says here in this passage in Colossians, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Isn't that an interesting choice of words? Your life is hidden. I mentioned this a little bit before, but I'll repeat it. Did you see yourself die? Did you see yourself be raised with Christ Jesus? No, please tell me if you did, but you didn't actually witness it with your eyes. You know, you know it happened. You believe, you know it happened. You see something new happening in you. You're, you're being sanctified. You're growing in the Lord. But that aspect is kind of veiled even to our eyes. It's certainly veiled to the world around us. How many of us have come to the Lord and are saved and we went to teach and spread the gospel to our family members and they look at you and are like, I remember. And they give you that long list of failures or things that you've done in your life. I remember when. Because they just can't see it. It reminds me of Jesus. When he went preaching and he went into Nazareth and he went into the synagogue and he started preaching the word of God with boldness. I mean, he is the word of God. And people stopped and said, isn't that the carpenter's son? They could see Jesus for who he was. Not even the disciples could see Jesus for who he was until he rose and was ascended, except for two, who went with him to what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? He stood up on the mountain and that veil of flesh was pulled back and they get to see Christ in all of his glory shining brightly like the sun and they saw Christ for who he was. Of course, Peter and his, his impulsive sinfulness said, hey, let's build a temple right here and start worshiping this area. No, you're, you're missing the point. God was showing them who Christ was. Right? And he said, he's hidden to you right now, but listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Similarly, our lives are hidden. The world just can't see it, but we know that it's there. And this propels us because when we struggle with sin, we also struggle with the hiddenness of who we are in Christ Jesus. This is why it is so important to remember our union with Christ because we're identified with him this way. And that what we do with people who baptize, we give them shirts that say identified with Christ Jesus because we are identified with him because we're in union with Jesus Christ. You know what Satan likes to do? He likes to commit identity theft. I didn't mean victim of identity theft here. It's not a fun process, right? I know my wife, she was a victim of identity theft when we bought our first house. And ever since then, it took years to fix that big mess that was going on. And every time we move somewhere, we still get a letter from that person or that was addressed to that person, you know, just because it kind of follows you a little bit everywhere you go. And it creates a mess in your life. This is what Satan's identity theft does with us. It comes in and it gets our, we, we take our eyes off of the fullness of our identity in Jesus Christ. We start mixing all these other things to it because we need the fullness of our salvation. And we're robbing ourselves of our true identity in Christ Jesus. And it makes a mess in our lives because, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that the things that the world offers, these false teachers, all that they offer are things of the earth. It may have the trappings of religion or spirituality, but it's all of this earth. If it's not of Christ, it's of this earth. That's why Paul says, seek the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. We fall prey to the marketing scam of Satan. Anybody fell prey to a bad marketing deal? <laughs> you bought something, you were convinced you needed it. You know, you look at those, uh, you can't sleep, and unfortunately you watch an infomercial at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And man, I didn't know I needed so many things out there. This is going to revolutionize my life, whatever it is. And you know, it looks shiny, it looks neat, they present it in such a way to convince you that you need it for yourself, for your life, as your family, or whatever it is. 
And then you spend money on it, you get it, and then you immediately get buyer's remorse. It's not really what you needed. It's a piece of junk or whatever it is. And you really didn't need it in the first place. And all that you have to show for it now is a, is a smaller bank account than when you first started. We fall prey to Satan's marketing schemes when we take our eyes off of Christ and everything he provides for us and put it onto something else. That's what was happening to the people of Colossae. They were wrestling with sin. They thought they needed something more than what they had. And they were given these special shiny little things that they needed in their life by the marketing ploys of Satan. And they were making a mess out of their lives. Oh, may that not happen to us. May we be aware of what Satan is doing to us. We must focus completely upon Christ. He has everything that we need. What else can be added? It's the fullness of Christ. The Godhead resides in him in full. He died. He rose again. All of that power. We're now united with Jesus Christ. And I like that he says, our life is hidden in Christ. I look at that as a great source of security. Because he doesn't just say your life is hidden. He said your life is hidden with Christ in God. I love those layers that he keeps adding to that. My life is not my own anymore. It belongs to Christ Jesus. When I got saved, I said, Christ, I need you more than anything in this world. I, I just, I cannot exist. You are the reason for my existence. I need you. And then we're united with Christ. My life isn't my own. It belongs to him. My life is now bound up into Jesus Christ, which makes it all the more appalling when we turn to something other than Christ, does it not? But we're bound up with Christ. And if that wasn't secure enough, Christ is bound up with God. That's what he says. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Who can take something away from God? <laughs> it's rhetorical, obviously. And you want security. That's security. We're always trying to find ways to secure things. Don't we secure our houses with alarm systems and, and we secure our data files and we put things in multiple places so we have backups upon backups and, because we want security. And even that is not so secure. Well, our security in Jesus Christ, our, our salvation, is the most secure thing that this world could ever, ever have. Because it's bound up in Christ, and Christ is with God. There's nothing that can be done to take that away from you. Try to take something out of God's hands. No one can touch the hidden life of Christ. That wasn't, that wasn't enough. I mean, we've got two out of the three things talked about, that, that we died with Christ, that we were raised with him and are hidden with him, which is a good thing. The third motivation is that our life, will, our hidden life, will be revealed in glory at the second coming of Jesus. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I love this. You know, the, the, the believer, the Christian, should long for the second coming of Jesus Christ. We want to do it because we want to see Jesus as he is. We know how amazing he is, how wonderful he is. I can't wait to see him. Now, I, I long to see him, whether God calls me home or he comes back, whichever comes first. But, you know, to be honest, I really want to see Jesus with my, with my physical eyes. I want to hear a trumpet blast. I want to see the sky crack open. And I want to look up and I'll see where all the ruckus is. And I see this brilliance, this brilliant Christ standing before me. That's Jesus. I want to be with him. That's glorious. People all over will see Jesus as he is. The believers will rejoice. The lost will tremble. He will be the full radiance of the glory of God that you can look upon face to face and live. But what's more amazing than that is you will be revealed for who you are too. Like I said, you can't see your hidden life. But that veil will get torn away. And as you see Christ, you will be revealed for who you are. You will share in this glorious epiphany. The day of the revelation of the Son of God will be the day of revelation of the sons of God too. And you will shine just like Christ. How do I know? 
Look to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Small book, short book, packed with such important truths. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. Let's just full stop that right there. Now we are the children of God. We were once enemies with God. You didn't even know you were an enemy until God told you, showed you, you're my enemy. And he reconciled you. He just didn't make you a friend. He adopted you as his kids. You are now in the family of God. You can now call God your father. You're not just part of the kingdom of God. You're an integral part of the kingdom of God because you're in the royal family. Your father is the king and sovereign of the universe and everything in it. He said, now we are the children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Because I'm sure people were asking John, so when, when it's all over with, what are, what are we going to be like? Is this going to be like, like this? <laughs> I sure hope not. He, but John's like, admittedly, we're, we're not sure. We know, so we should know this, everybody. We know that when he appears, meaning Jesus, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will be like Jesus Christ because we're part of that same family. Do you ever really contemplate what it means for Jesus to be your brother? I mean, in a very real way. You know, in adoption circles, the law makes no distinction between a biological child or, or an adopted child. No distinction. It's as if they've always been part of that family. That truth flows all the way out of Scripture to today. There is no distinction between a biological son of God and an adopted son of God. Now, Christ is the elder brother. He's the first. He's the firstborn of all creation. Christ is our brother. And when he is fully revealed to this world, so will you. Does that give you joy? Can you imagine what you will be like when it all comes down to it? And then we turn to the world, though, for things. Christ plus, whatever it is. Christ plus is nothing. It takes our identity away from Christ. This is why I said Satan commits identity fraud. He doesn't want us to know who we are in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want us to remember what happened to us when we died with Christ. He doesn't want us to know that we walk in newness of life with resurrection power. He certainly doesn't want us to look forward to the revealing of Jesus Christ and the revealing of who we are. Because if we keep those things in our mind, that propels us and motivates us to love Christ enough to live where he's the center of our lives. It's when we get off of those things, then we become the center of our lives. And that's not a good place to be. Oh, remember what, what Paul is saying here. Remember what the Bible is saying. These truths should motivate us. So we got those three, those three foundational truths. Now let's move to Paul's second point in this passage, and that Christ-centered people are marked by two unique qualities. I mean, our life may be hidden in Christ, but it's certainly not invisible, is it? We are called to walk in newness of life. That means something. What does it mean? First, their hearts, our hearts are heaven-directed. Now, that comes from Colossians 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, verse 2 looks like it's the same. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are earth. They're kind of parallel with each other there, although I think we can make a little nuanced dis uh, distinction here between the two. Keep seeking the things that are above. My life, as one who is identified with Jesus Christ, is now marked with a different direction, a different course. I'm heading in a different way, and I, do it I don't do it automatically. I've got to be diligent with it. I keep on seeking this new course in my life. Now you take that trip, right, and you put your GPS going, tell you where to go. And we have this unique ability. Well, not, some of us don't have such a great ability yet, but some of us, we, we have one eye on the road and one eye on our phone with the GPS, right? So we're kind of doing this, and we keep that in front of us, 
right? And we see where we are positionally, and we see where we're headed. And nothing can keep us from that goal, right? We stray sometimes. I remember taking a trip once, and I had one of those things going, and it was a, it was a road, had a lot of construction on it. And of course, GPS didn't update, so I didn't know all this stuff. So it was a little confusing. And, and I was driving, and I'm following, and it looked like I was supposed to make a turn. So I made a turn, and it was wrong. Well, so what does GPS do? It turns you around, you know, it, it reroutes you back up to the main, get back on the main road. And I started driving, and the same thing happened a second time. I turned off on the wrong road, and I looked at my wife and said, eventually GPS is going to stop rerouting me and just say, no, I refuse. You didn't listen to me the first time. I'm not going to help you anymore. But we're so focused on this destination. But I'm also old enough that I remember life before GPS. Take a trip, you didn't know where you're going, you had to get the old Rand McNally Atlas. Remember those big book atlases? I used to love those things. I'd plot my little course. I'd have like a little highlighter and highlight the routes I was taking. And so if my wife was driving, I'd have that thing out. And I'm like, okay, we're going here. There's going to be a traffic light there. Don't turn there. Go, go straight. And I was singularly focused on my destination. This is what Paul is saying here in this passage, that those who are identified with Jesus Christ are marked with a new course for their life. I cannot live the way I used to anymore. I cannot come to Christ, claim to come to Christ, claim to be identified with Christ, and go off and keep living the way that I lived. Doesn't make any sense. My life is not mine, it's Christ. I gave it to him by faith. So now I have something new. I have a new course, a new chart. I diligently seek it with my heart, but it doesn't come automatically, does it? That's why the, it's properly translated here, keep seeking. That's the verb in the Greek. It's a continual action. Keep seeking the things above. Keep that course going because you know how easy it is to deviate on the road. Life will throw some construction zones at you. And you look like you're heading in the right direction and it's kind of veer off a little bit. You got to keep seeking things above. And in case we didn't know what Paul is talking about here, he elaborates, keep seeking things above where Christ is. In case you didn't get that, seated at the right hand of God. So he's trying to going beyond the whole spatial, you know, above. It's not above physically. It's this realm of heaven where Christ is the center of it all and reigns through it all. That's what you seek. Jesus said it, right? He said, seek first the what? The kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What are the these things in that passage? Things of the earth, right? That's what they were whining about. What are we going to eat? What are we going to dress ourselves? How, you know, all these, no, that's all important. Please eat and please dress yourself, okay? That's coming from the pulpit. It's important, but we can't make that our obsession and our singular focus in life. That's not the direction of life. Earthly things are the direction of people who are not identified with Christ, who don't live a Christ-centered life. People who do seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Where do I find it? Right here. There is no, no, we don't have to seek it out on a mountaintop somewhere or find some guru or whatever. God gave it to us in the scriptures. We go here first before we say, hey Siri. We go to the word. We seek it with all of our hearts. So he was contending, he's contrasting this with the false teachers. He said, keep seeking the things above. You know, in verse 2 he says, not on the things that are on the earth. He's contrasting this with the false teachers. Because anything that doesn't come from Christ comes from this earth. Always a false teacher's starting point is something to do with this earth. I need to amass the fullness of the things of the earth in order to attain heaven. Or if they're not Christians, it would be appease the God or the gods. That's where it always begins. And it has the trappings of righteousness and spirituality, but it's simply of this earth. That's why being singularly focused on Christ, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, is so important and why we have to be so diligent because anything else is of this earth. But we have to keep going because, I mean, union and our communion with Christ, and when I say communion, I'm not just talking about what we do on Sunday mornings occasionally with the, the bread and the cup. 
communion, being constantly in fellowship with, with Christ, union and communion with a crucified and resurrected Christ means that truth shapes my life. It's something new. Are you new? If you are in Christ, are you new? Do you have a new course? Or do you keep going the way that you've been going all along? Remember pastoring down south. Became, became pastor there and I was just going around meeting people and it was an older man. He was like 86 years old. I met, and, and I met with him, talked with him. You know, it was delightful to talk with. And so I started talking about some spiritual things, trying to, you know, see if, if he's in the faith. And, and he said, oh, you know, Brian, I tried reading that Bible. A lot of it was really hard to understand. I just try to live by common sense. Okay, let's talk about that a little bit. Try to break things down. It was things of the earth, not things in heaven. That is what marks a Christ-centered life. So Christ-centered people, their hearts are heaven-directed. There's one more. Their minds are heaven-focused. Their minds are heaven-focused. That's where verse 2 comes in. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Whereas I looked at verse 1 as keep seeking the things that are above, as just an inner determination that that's what I'm going to do. It's what marks my life. I've got a new course, a new direction. Now I have to engage my mind in that as well. There is a war going on for our thoughts. We have to set our minds on the things above, not on the things of this earth. And we do this, right, because and he, and this imperative is so strong here because it's easy for us to put our, our minds on the things of the earth. It's where it's been our whole lives until Christ miraculously saves us. But our brains don't instantly change overnight, does it? We have to set the minds. What are we thinking about? What dominates our thoughts? What do we contemplate when things get quiet? When we're not in service or Bible studies, we're sitting at home. What dominates? There's some good and noble things that we should be thinking about. You know, about how to be a better employee or, or how to be a better boss or how to be a good husband and a good, fa- a good father and mother and all that. Those are good thoughts. Those are all noble thoughts in light of the things that are above. What dominates our thoughts? What do we think about? Remember what Paul said in uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Right? He said to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable act of worship. Be transformed by the what? Renewing of our minds that we can test and prove what the will of God is. We have to rewire the thinking in our brains because our brains will naturally go back to the old stuff. And if we don't retrain how we think in light of the scriptures, all we're doing is taking the old shovel and we're exhuming the old corpse called Brian and I'm trying to get advice from him. That's foolish. Why would I even do that? That's what Paul's saying is you don't. You need to set your mind on things that are above. Now, I want you to remember the word salvation is kind of an umbrella term and it means many different things. There's a lot of different uh, things that are involved in what we call salvation. But it's going to sound like a dust statement, but salvation leads to being saved, right? We're saved. We're transformed, right? Being saved leads to setting our minds on the things that are above. Is your mind on the things above? And what does that mean? Well, I've been holding this up occasionally, right? The Word of God. How about the gospel of Jesus Christ? How often do we just sit down somewhere and think about the gospel? I mean, really contemplate it. You see, that's the problem. We have to make time for those kinds of things. Because if you haven't noticed, the world is a really noisy place. It doesn't want you to think. It just wants you to accept what it offers and do it. But you can't set your minds if it's constantly with the noise going. You've got to turn off the television occasionally, turn off the radios, whatever it is, right? And sit, be quiet, and think on the Word of God. And the first thing that we think about is the gospel. Oh, don't ever get trapped. I've said this before. The, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. 
It's the A through Z of Christianity. Don't get caught up in the thinking that the gospel is just that entry point. And then once we get to that entry point, I'm in, then, then I can move beyond that to other stuff. Now, you will never unravel the full glory and mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You never will. We should try, but you never will. Because the more you think about it, you contemplate it, the more you learn, the more you fall in love about Jesus Christ. One thing that I've learned about being a Christian for a while is that the longer I'm a believer and the longer the Lord grows me and sanctifies me, the more I really hate my sin and the more frustrated with it I get. Have you ever experienced that? Just that real frustration that you, you, you let your sights get off of Christ and the Word and you fell into some sin and the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder like only He can, right? Brian, <sighs> yeah, I did it. I can't believe I did it. Why did I do that? It was so stupid. It's because I got my eyes off of Christ. So when I remind myself of the gospel, when I think about the gospel deeply and all that Christ did, I hate sin so much more than what I ever did. But I love Christ so much more than I ever thought I could. That's what it does for us. That's why you hear preachers say, rehearse the gospel to yourselves. It's not a cliche. It's a life statement. You've got to do it and really think about it. Think about who you are apart, who you were apart from Jesus Christ and everything he did to reconcile you to the Father and to be identified with him. And not only saving this sinner, but uniting me with himself so that I'm a new person in God's eyes. He sees the righteousness of Christ all over me. I don't want him to look at my righteousness because it's not really there. I want him to see the righteousness of Christ. We rehearse this to ourselves and we fall in love with Christ so much more. We've got to think about it, meditate on it. Don't go through it quickly. You know, the wages of sin is death, the gift of God's eternal life, Jesus Christ our Lord, and Jesus died for me. And we can get that way sometimes. Right? Sometimes when we rehearse things that we've rehearsed before, we can get really fast with it, but we stop and slow down and really think about what it applies. Use the minds that God has given you. Retrain that way of thinking. Fall in love with Christ. But beyond that, as you read the Word of God and do read the Word of God, read it slow. It's a wonderful, noble thing to want to read the, the Bible, the entire Bible, in a year. It's a bad thing if you read the Bible in an entire year and you don't really get anything out of it. Because all we're doing is just reading. And we're not really catching what it's saying. We're not allowing the Holy Spirit to take these words, pull them off the page, apply them to our lives, and transform us to be more like Jesus Christ. Sometimes people can do that. They can read real fast and they're just really growing and they're loving it. Some people, we need to slow down a little bit. No one says that you have to do this in a year. That's, it'd be nice, I suppose, but if it takes you three years to go through the Bible or more, but you're taking it verse by verse and you're really thinking about what it means, you're asking and praying while you do it for the Holy Spirit to open up your eyes, that's how you set your minds on things above, not things of the earth. Remember now, the context of this where these false teachers were coming in and giving them things of the earth, and they seemed right. I mean, if you are presented with something that's blatantly sinful and evil, you're probably not going to do it. But that's not how it happens. We make it look good. We make it look spiritual. We make it look religious. We make it look practical. Right? That's the buzzword, right? It's got to be practical. It has to be practical. And we accept a little bit here, and a little bit here, and we become desensitized to things. And before we know, we're on that long slide of being disconnected from Christ. Doesn't happen overnight. That's why we must be vigilant and set our minds on this. I love in the book of Acts, the Berean believers. When Paul came preaching through the book of Acts, they heard what he said, and then they studied the word to see if what Paul was saying was true. That's how we do it. You know, we use that phrase, we take every thought captive, right? So when I'm struggling with the temptation, we take every thought captive. Well, what, what does that mean, take every thought captive? Well, I know how the charismatics mean it, and that's definitely not the way the scripture means it. We take every thought captive. We say, wait a second, is that of the earth or is that from heaven? If it's of the earth, 
I am not of the earth anymore. I died to the things of the earth. I'm raised to walk in newness of life. My focus, my goal is now heavenward. That's how you take thoughts captive. When temptation comes your way, you live Christ-centered by grabbing a hold of that and saying, is it of the earth? Is it of heaven? It's of heaven? Great. Meditate on it. Think about it. Let God change your life through it. It's of the things of the earth. You need to get rid of it fast. You should toy with sin. We toy with things of the earth. It's a slow desensitizing. And before long, we're doing what Paul said of the, the Colossians being taken captive, being defrauded. Man, I don't want any of us to be defrauded of what Christ provides, and he provides everything. Don't let people, don't let, don't let the world and its philosophy and its traditions and its legalism and its advice take you captive and defraud you of what's rightly yours in Christ Jesus. Live that Christ-centered life, and you will experience victory over sin. I'm not saying that you won't struggle. The struggle is real. You know that phrase? The struggle is real. It is real, but we got to struggle. That's what it's about. It's about struggling with it. It's about contending for the faith, as Paul calls it. We contend for it with the Word of God. We're in it diligently. We're in the Word, but then we gather together here. This is what we're doing, isn't it? We're all encouraging each other to keep our eyes on things above, not on the things of this earth. That's what we do. We encourage each other here. People are, are coming in a different, you know, we go through the week and we're kind of beat up a little bit at times. And some folks are they're doing really good. They've they're been in the Word. The Lord's ministering to them. They feel like they can minister to others. And there's some people coming just need some ministering to. We come and encourage each other. What do we encourage each other with? Platitudes, cliches, worldly wisdom. Let me give you the name of someone you can call in the world. They've got great credentials and a lot of initials next to their name. Or do we take them to the Word of God? I know as elders, man, we enjoy our elders' meetings on Tuesday. Sometimes they go pretty long. But we, we really enjoy those because not only do we pray for each other and learn and, and, and brainstorm how we can encourage you all, but we encourage each other. There are times we come in and just say, man, my heart is heavy because of this. I've been wrestling with this. I've been wrestling with that. And someone, inevitably, one of them, encourages us with the Word of God. That's why we need each other. This is how we set our minds on the things above. But it has to be a commitment that we make. That's why Paul is urgent. He uses a lot of imperative verbs in this passage. It's not just suggestions. He's commanding them to do this. And he's reminding them that it's their lack of doing these things that's caused them to fall into this false teaching and get themselves captive to it and are now defrauded of what's rightly theirs in Christ. So the imperatives then for us is that we must remember our union with Jesus Christ as that motivation to live the Christ-centered life. Sometimes you wake up, you just don't feel it. Well, it's a good thing we don't go by our feelings, right? We go by the Word of God. So we go to the Word. We remind ourselves that we're dead. With the old self is dead with Christ. We remind ourselves that right now, I am raised with Christ. I'm living the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. His power is within me to live rightly before him. And I look forward to the day when that hiddenness is made revealed and the world can see me for who that I am. I can see myself for who I am because I see Christ and I'm like him. But then I use that to propel me to live it, to keep my direction focused heavenward, to keep my mind focused on the things above, not the things below. Amen. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the word. There's so many... Satan is always at work. Sometimes we get so passive in our faith and we forget that the enemy is always active. And sin is always active. It's always trying to offer us substitutes cheap substitutes for what is real. Forgive us for when we fall into those things, Lord. I pray for the congregation here today that you would give them that fire that they need to remember and be motivated by the fact that they're united to Jesus Christ. Or for those who haven't put their faith in Christ, I pray that today would be the day that they would call upon you, plead for your mercy and forgiveness, and then be united to you, Lord. And as we walk this 
into this world, into this next week. I pray that you'd help us to live Christ-centered lives, to keep our eyes focused heavenward, to keep our minds and our directions focused on, on heavenward. And I pray, God, that if we have a goal or an aim or an ambition of some kind that's not of the, of the heavenlies, it's not from you, I pray that you would convict us of that so we can be in line with what you have for us. I thank you for each one of us. I thank you for the time you've given us. I pray you dismiss us with safety and your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.